Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed spiritual family therapist here with you. And I want to remind everyone that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. This does not constitute working with a mental health professional. Please seek out a mental health professional in your area. And if they're not in your immediate area, please consider the abilities to see them virtually. I know it's not all what what everyone would like, but that still gives you a chance to get some mental health, which is better than no mental health. So today we're going to be talking with a gentleman that was introduced to me. And after listening to some of his talk, I found um, some kindredness in it as well. And that I think work that, especially as a black man, uh, we need to be considering and thinking about because there's healing in what we're going to be talking about and the work that they do and healing that I think also culturally we need to revisit and understand differently. So today's guest is Aaron Johnson. Aaron Johnson is a facilitator, public speaker, and a touch activist who practices closeness as a way to break down barriers between people. As a co-founder of both Holistic Resistance and Grief to Action, Aaron takes the time to hold hold the stories of Black people around homophobia, transphobia, internalized racism, and those that are chronically undertouched. Aaron has created the Chronically Undertouched Project, the basic strategy to bring a Black body from being chronically undertouched to a state of touch balance as a part of the lifelong journey of interrupting oppressive systems that make touch balance a radical action. So welcome to Untying Knots, Aaron. Mm, Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to talk to you today. Thank you for being here, because I think this is a very critical element to our, our, just our sense of being, but even then to what some would consider self-care. And we're not talking about the self-care that you find yourself, you know, buying up or anything like that. This is about the long-term sense of how are we in touch, not just with ourselves, but with those around us. Yes. So how did you get here? Yeah, how did I get here? You know, it on paper, it started about 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't have the form of the language we're using now, like chronic inner touch. But the death of my father in 2010, I didn't even take the time or even have the capacity to have access to my tears till two years after he passed away. And in that journey of, of healing access to my tears, I realized how much I wasn't in my body. And I could almost distill it down to a moment where at the time she was my fiance, but before I got married, Camelia and I were talking about my father's death and I was explaining to him what happened to her, what happened. And she started to weep. And as she finished weeping, she looked at me and goes, why aren't you feeling this? Have you cried? Have you felt this before? And I said, no, not really. Um, she said, you should look at that. And like, that was the kind of first step into like me going back into my body, going something's up. And that journey of accessing my tears then moved itself into me examining my touch needs. And so I worked for two years on my own personally to mm-hmm. get to a place of noticing how chronically undertouched I was. I didn't have that language 
that language didn't show up till another two years after that, working with the mentee. And that story with him and that moment where I asked him the question, when was the last time um, he had been held platonically and thoughtfully for three mm-hmm. minutes? And he couldn't think of three minutes in the next, in the last 12 years. And that was the moment that conversation was pivotal to birth the language chronically untouched. And here we are almost seven and a half years later, and I have much more language and practice and community around it. And it's still an emergent practice. That's how I arrived. Very nice. And very telling too, because I mean, we're dealing with the classic image, not only that many men find, and I'm just talking about in any culture here, about the idea that the men is man is supposed to bestow a kind of emotional, if at all possible, if they are to show emotions, it's either happiness or sadness, uh, or sorry, not sadness, anger. But even then the nature of what touch conveys, because there's so much that is conveyed just in that gesture yeah. that sometimes even words just cannot provide. Mm-hmm. And the nature, especially for us as black men, of what does touch mean for us? What does touch, how is that actually something that has shaped where we are sitting right now? Both what touch we have been able to access and what touch we haven't. Yes. Mm. So... Well how so once you begin to start framing for some of us the language that you now understand and work with to give people more context totally totally i think what's important is there's a couple of things that i will say in context of the chronically undertouch is i i tried other words like I'm a little undertouched. No, it's chronic. When we, look at, when we look at the amount of touch the human body actually needs and how much is readily available to us, and then we add in you know, intersectionalities of, of, of you know, oppression, and I look at the kind of birthing of the, the Black brute, um, it, it really, to me, chronically just articulates that there's probably a, a, a spectrum, but most folks I work with are somewhere on the extreme, meaning they haven't gotten three minutes of thoughtful touch and in the last you know month and let alone 12, 12 months. And so that's common. That's that's pretty common. And so for me, the language chronically touches speaks to the seriousness of it and it really slows us down a bit. The other piece I think is important is that we do a lot of juxtapositions, right? For me as an African heritage man, I go, where does tender touch fit in my world? Like where in my daily life, when I turn on the television, when I go to the store, when I interact with people, when I listen to music, where does the idea of tender touch and my black male cis body come together. And that mm-hmm. to me, I find is, is, is rare. It's rare. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've looked a lot of places and it's rare that that's commonly available once I get past the age of like five or six and mm-hmm. seven. And by the time I get to 18, um, it's, it's not even a landscape. And so I look at that by design of American, by design of oppression. So chronic touch is one of the key things we use. And another thing I use in our workshops, we oftentimes use this idea of, it's this common phrase, we say, let's slow that down. And we don't mean by just say it slower. We're talking about taking the time to observe our realities in a much more clear, and and, and sometimes when you get to these vulnerable places, we want to skip past them very quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times we get to that that um, uh, part of the story. And it's a part of the story. I remember the first time I cried, I had someone hold space for me. This is why slowing down became my, part of my own practice. So amazing, amazing space holder. Her name was uh, Jennifer Romos, amazing human being. And she had me tell my story, my father's death. And I would, I would do, I would, I could tell that story with no emotion, except I get to the place where I tell my mother in the story, I tell my mother that 
her husband is dead, that our father is dead. The moment I tell her that, and my mom begins to weep and scream like one should do when one loses their loved one for their lifetime, a love of lifetime, I have a hard time when I tell that story not to have emotions. So I would tell her this story almost numbly up until that point. Mm-hmm. And she had me tell the story one time. It's a year and a half into our holding space for She's holding space for me. And I get to that part of the story and I barely make it through without tears. I was hanging on for a thread. And she goes, she's leaned forward and goes, can you, can you tell me that story one more time? And just the part where you told your mother, she's leaned in and listened. And I just started to begin to weep. And, and I think that is a slowdown. She heard me tell the story probably 10 times over the last two years. She's worked with it multiple times. But she said, I just want you to tell me that, that part of the story that part of the story where you told your mother that your father had passed, that part. And that's slowing down. It's just taking us back to that space emotionally, physically, time-wise. And it cracked us, cracked me open, but it's also a place of how much I want to skip past. I mm-hmm. even got faster in my language when I got to that part of the story. I got a little more, I, I want to get past that space because the mere time being there in that space was never safe for me. Mm-hmm. And it was safe for me for those two years, but I didn't believe it for a year and a half. And so I say that because when I look at slowing that down, that's almost the fundamental practice we do outside of listening. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's one of the things that I think that um, you'll see show up a lot in our deep dives and our workshops and our one-on-ones is we'll practice constantly. How do we slow that down? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. what you're so talking about with this aspect of the, the vulnerability and the trying to escape from that part is a critical part too of what we deal with. Just the notion that this is a place where you could be vulnerable. Yeah. And at that same time, what makes me think about comes back to one of the most critical things that we probably are taught and is that no place is vulnerable for us to do that. Yeah. And even more so when we are with our own people within our own homes and so forth, that somehow those places that we are supposed to be able to be vulnerable are also the places we are basically getting judged as not being, not to allow that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're telling it, I was thinking about one of my clients who, um, long and short of it, his mother basically said that he was less of a man as a child growing up that he had to go into the military to theoretically prove her wrong. Mm. And just that sense of this is a place where the touch and that vulnerability should be the most allowed compared to everything else we're seeing in the world. Yeah. Mm. Well said. I think tenderness I was saying tenderness is, yeah. is such a human thing. It's such a, a, a real human thing. As I appreciate that piece of where that's oftentimes one of the first things distracted from uh, mm-hmm. the young, young male body and, and particularly the young black male body. And then throw into how that becomes more difficult to find that vulnerable place of vulnerability in other places of the world, especially when it has failed in the family. And your experience there became the place of that this was an environment where someone was intentionally trying to make this not just a place of safety, but as and because 
that's all going to be just, uh, relative to what you can think is safe, but that there is a space of normalizing that it was okay for your tears, that it was okay for you to have that experience. Yes. And valuing yes. that that experience is actually normal and human. Yes. Versus the idea of the stoic. Yes. There's something like moving through my body right now is that you share that, that feels so resonant with um if i had to have like a mantra that that i have to almost say every day to folks that i'm mentoring in our workshops and our one-on-ones and our you know drop-ins is that's a normal human experience yeah that's those tears are a normal human experience that that desire for a tender touch in your back right now is a normal human experience and it's amazing how effective oppression has turned normal human experiences into a weapon and things that are really inhumane like punching each other in the face as hard as we can until someone goes unconscious is like yeah that's normal yeah that's just mm-hmm. it's just good it's good for the brain to get punched no i mean i it's just not and i and i say that not lightly but it it it, it feels important to slow down the normalness of inhumane activity Mm-hmm. and and who pays the price for it and we look mm-hmm. at all of the therapists and all the mental health support and i look at what we're doing as as a culture and i'm like there's not enough therapists to hold the the level of of isolation around and 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 touch is that like i always say is that that canary in the emotional mind like if touch is not there there's a whole breadth of other things that are going to be impacted by the nervous system you know so mm-hmm. i just track like the 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 the, the knowing of um when we talk about a comprehensive touch plan for young black men, we talk about go outside and put your feet on the ground. Like, well, mm-hmm. I understand why that's important. No, I mean, just let's go outside and put your feet on the ground, your actual bare feet on the ground. And I'm, I'm right now in a little cabin. It's a cop house. It's made out of 80% earth and timber. And mm-hmm. it's, it's so different to live or sleep in a house that's made of like 80% earth is palpably different. And so I know everyone has access to that, but I just want to name how important and how interwoven we are with the planet. But oftentimes the crunk and touch, we're already separate. We're mm-hmm. separate from the land. And there's all kinds of other barriers that separate black folks, particularly from the land. But there's all that levels of like, oh, oh, land reparations and crunk and touch are linked. Yes, they are. Having access to safety, going to national parks and black folks being have access to that piece, they're connected. They're all kind of normalize why a basketball court, which basketball is a great sport, is way more accessible to most folks in inner city than the Redwood Forest. Mm-hmm. That's that's by design in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just feeling that in my body deep. Certainly. Because I think the and I think it's also clear for people to understand when we're talking about touch, we're not talking and as you pointed out the aspect of we're not talking about beating somebody up. We're not talking no. about it from a place of sexual impact not I don't want to say empowerment. I want to say sexual mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or getting into a power dynamic where touch is basically being used to overpower somebody. Yes. This is a place where consent is being recognized and uh, em- embraced. But touch as you just pointed out with the aspect of go ahead and touch and touch the ground is not just about human to human it's also human to nature mm-hmm. to the world yeah yes Ooh. there's a piece around consent that you said that just activates a lot of my 
my uh, work that I do with young black men specifically because of how easily um, words of accusation of consent violation sticks to our black bodies so easily in the culture we live in. And I, I really track the relationship between the chronically undertouched black body and the consent violations that I oftentimes is mediating for. Um, and I find that when one is in their touch balance, their ability to hear the guidelines and best thinking around consent are so much more accessible mm-hmm. than somebody that is in a chronic touch state and they're in a trauma-led state and they're trying to do the consent thing and they're having a hard time not justifying this behavior, but having a hard time because no one is actually addressing the root issue, which is listening, yes. But mm-hmm. I always tell people, if, I'm, if I've been starving, if I've been starving, lost in the forest for for weeks on end, I'm, I'm starving. You take me into a buffet and it smells like my favorite steaks and all the things that I love. And I'm like, oh, I've been starving for chunking. Oh, and, oh there's some guidelines. Um, there's some guidelines for this steak that you have and all this buffet, this mm-hmm. whole buffet that's here. The guideline is you get to smell it for an hour. Don't even reach and touch and grab a biscuit. Don't grab you a steak. Just, just smell. I know you've been starving for, for four weeks in the forest, but the guidelines here, the consent level here is you get to eat in an hour. So I just want you to walk by and just smell it and just smell it. In the meantime, the other people walking by you, grabbing the steak, biting it, eating the buffet, and they're like, mm, this is so good. And you're like, I've been starving, I want some. And you finally say, okay, 30 minutes, I'm gonna grab some real fast. And that's all, I'm gonna grab it, I'm gonna sneak it, I'm gonna sneak it. And like, eh, You've, it's outside of consent. What is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. It lasted for 30 minutes. And I, it doesn't justify the behavior. He should still wait. But if we said, you know what? We're going to nourish you for those four weeks. We're going we're gonna to bring you out of your nourishment. We're going to feed you in increments because you've been starving for four weeks. We're going to feed you in IVs and in water hydration and slowly bring you back to nourishment. We're going to bring in increments. We're gonna, you're not going to smell any food. We're going to be thoughtful about your environment. We're going to bring you back to complete balance. You're nourished. I mean, your, your blood tests say that you have all the nutrients you need. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take you back to that, that buffet that smells amazing where everyone else is eating. I'm going to say, can you stand there for an hour? You'll no problem. Mm-hmm. I got a problem at all. I can sit here for an hour. Mm-hmm. Not even an issue. People are like, do you want some of this? It's so good. Not even tempted. I'm I'm attached balance. So whatever guidelines are given, they don't even flip. That makes sense to me. I can't, I can't do that thing. Right. So there's a way that the chronic and untouched narrative is to me foundationally in complete support of the Me Too movement, of uh the chronic and untouched um bodies that are going out breaking consent it's in complete support of that and so oftentimes we find that folks we spend a lot of time and we should hold people accountable for their actions we spend a lot of time saying you are now in trouble you are now kicked out of community you are now because you we have no actual plan of like what is your touch plan what where are you at and your actual needs and what does it mean if we can get you to a place or even better yet get ahead of it so you are in that place of violation so i look at you know fusion dance communities i look at blues dance communities i look at yoga studios i look at corporate business and i i just see it riddled with mm-hmm. the opportunity we can get ahead of this and we oftentimes don't so i just want to name that consent piece is a massive piece of my heart as i'm working with a lot of folks throughout the Northwest and the United States um, to think about incorporating that wisdom into their consent practices and training. There's a lot of good things around consent. There's a way in which I think that's oftentimes missed or yet Mm -hmm. dismissed in a way that I think is underserving the population we want to serve the most. Very much so. Because I know also when I'm working with clients and so forth, especially men, one of the things that sort of gets caught up, and this even comes up with 
some degrees about what we're seeing with people who are having the issue with say porn addiction mm-hmm. um, is the aspect of what has been normalized around the idea of touch and vulnerability that the most allowable time for a man to have that touch and to have that vulnerability is also intertwined with sex. And as opposed to having this moment of, yeah, touching the ground, enjoying the feel of the water in the swimming pool, having that hand on the back, having that hug, which makes for that standpoint of that, the quote unquote unquote, craving for sex is actually the craving for vulnerability. But it yes. gets labeled. Ooh. Ooh. That quote unquote craving for sex is craving for vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Craving to be seen. That's well said. Mm. And craving to be touched. And craving to be touched. Which is where it's very easy for it to flip over into that inappropriate, that destructive, that power seeking, which is often one of the things that I know is, is talked about with the idea of sexual assault. It's not yes. actually about the sex. It's about the power. It's about, yes. And that vulnerability has become replaced by that drive for power. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up a really important piece, particularly around porn and parts of mainstream music culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as a, as I track trauma through these music experiences, I track trauma through pornography. Um, I, I always tell the young men that I work with around pornography, I say, um, you know, I'm just curious if you could find me a video where a black man has a sexual experience. And when he's done or even during, he begins to weep. And whoever he's having sex with just turns around and cuddles him and holds him thoughtfully until he gets to a place of balance and turns back around and goes back into a sensual space. I see any version of that where there's some tears involved and sex combined. Mm-hmm. I just want to find, and they can't find a video. They can't find a video on mainstream porn sites or anywhere else where a tenderness vulnerability actually shows up for black mm-hmm. men that mm-hmm. mimics them. It happens every day. I guarantee you, as we're talking right now, there's some black man somewhere in the United States that is, has a tender tears and has an orgasm within five minutes of those tender tears. That's happening on a regular basis, but it's ungoogleable, it's unfindable, it's unshapeable to share that we can actually be human. And I remember when I heard an interview, I think it was Mike Tyson, and it stuck with me. I said it was a lot because he said, I used to cry before every fight. And then I remember the interview was like, why do you cry before every fight? He said, because I hated the person that was becoming to go out and fight. And I thought mm-hmm. to myself, I saw hundreds of minutes of, of, of thousands of minutes of Mike Tyson. And I saw one minute of him crying before a fight. Mm-hmm. I don't have, maybe it exists. I'm sure someone had something, but it didn't exist. Why? Why was it? Because we don't want to see Iron Mike crying, being human. We only want to see him oiled up, knocking somebody out or being knocked out. That's all we want to see. And I think porn industry, Hollywood, distills the black male body, distills blackness down to these tropes. Now, we're getting better cinematic. I love the the, the 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 influx of black cinema that's profound, but it is it is still in its beginning early stages. That's when I encourage us in this language we're using now, this thoughtful now, to I want to be proven wrong. I want to talk to you a year from now and go, oh, this is Googleable. These images are all accessible. These stories are accessible, but they're not at this moment. And it's by design and it have been for the last 50 years. So for me, or 100 years for that matter. But for me, I feel like we're on the cusp. We're on the cusp, I feel, maybe I'm optimistic here, of really having an opportunity to have different conversations around sexuality, around black male bodies, around tenderness, around being fully human mm-hmm. in our stories, in our erotic material, 
right, in our in our stories around rock material. And I think my work around Crown Counter Touch, it feels like a kink in this culture mm-hmm. because this culture is so confused about black male bodies being fully human. Very so. Very true. Very true. And as you were talking about it, what suddenly flipped back into my mind, which it also gets into the aspect of how as two black males interact was the scene from the first Black Panther movie after Zuri is killed and T'Challa is broken up crying and so forth. Killmonger is taunting him saying, this is your king, that he could start weeping at the death of this person, as opposed to Killmonger staying there stoic, willing to perpetuate more violence. Yeah. And let's be, be frank. Yes, there is protection of the people, but there is also recognition, the recognition and acknowledgement of the loss of the people. Yeah. And the moment that T'Challa shows this, again, human quality and the quality that was denied Killmonger's character as a yes. child. Yes. Yes. Is what brought us kill part of what brought us Killmonger. Yes. It's and it's part of what set the difference between, shall we say to a degree, of what made Wakanda that desired place. Yes. 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 Oh. oh. I just feel in my body because that film was profound in this impact on the black community. And you're naming these tropes that are just undertracked. Mm-hmm. There's not near enough analysis of what's being said. It's a little bit of dismissiveness of what you just shared. Mm-hmm. God forbid you said what you said right now, the day after that film released. Mm-hmm. Be like, how dare you have any kind of analysis that's outside of like, this is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Of what's happening. It's not that it wasn't an amazing, important Very film. I, so. It's an important film, but, but let's have an analysis. Of- Sorry, I had a glitch there for a second. So could you repeat that last part? Yeah, I just saying that when you look at the the film, if we would have said that the day after that film came out, it would have been like, how dare you have an analysis mm-hmm. of that film that's not just, it was amazing. It was important for all of us to see and to be made in the celebration of Blackness. But let's track these trauma stories that are being retold again and again. What might it mean mm-hmm. to spend some humanness in the Black male body with all the muscles and oil and cinematography? What about a more complete emotional profile? Mm-hmm. or even killmonger destroying the heart-shaped herb in the standpoint of he only wants he expects to be the last king of wakanda yes and there's someone else going to be coming after him yeah. and yet the people think of who is coming next yeah who is in that cycle of being here and that also translates into what is communicated by our sense of touch yes yes uh I feel like I almost seen a whole like Black Panther analysis. I feel like <laughs> to me, I, I know we can go to spiritual. I'll, I'll pause. I'll just say this one thing. I know we have meetings to talk about, but I just say that in the context of, uh, we'll quickly here. I'll just say that it's really tough for the end of that first film that two black men were trying to kill each other for the last mm-hmm. sequence of the entire sequence, and that in the end one was dying and one was living. That was the ultimate outcome of two black men fighting to the death at the very end of that powerful mm-hmm. story. And I'm like, could we have a different image? Could we have a different image? And, and could we have a more analysis of what that meant at the end of the day is that black folks are fighting black folks? That's really important to track when it comes to like, what Hollywood's like, yeah, that makes sense in the script. Let's make sure that's fun. And, and then black doc, you know, all, all the people that could support the thinking right now that that was one of the stories. That's why I think Black Panther 2 sits my body so much differently. But that being said, I just appreciate the emotional analysis we're giving. I think that needs to happen for more amazing stories, 
make them, but we should have conversations about them that are just, that's just, just, just emotionally aware. That's all. And the same thing can be said for Wakanda too, Wakanda forever. Now we have black black and brown people fighting over each other. And the battlefront that comes at the end of that between Shuri and Namor is also that place. And then the moment of how does Shuri get back in touch with that other, those qualities of her when, of course, Ramonda's message to her that she is more than just the anger. Yes. For the vengeance. And I would point out that is also the moment where she is physically also in contact with Namor. Yes. Admittedly, it's her foot that's on. Yeah. But still, she's making some sort of contact with them too. And she's making contact with the earth because their other foot was on the foot of been behind her. So that bridge. Yes. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's also across both Panther um, films is Black people in nature in ways that we don't typically see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a Hollywood, not, not outside of a National Geographic kind of, you know, mm-hmm. white voice talking over, but like empowered in ownership Black bodies on the earth. And, but there's a level of, I would love to, to, to kind of slow down how that lands in Black people's bodies today too. And I will say too that the, the, I would love to see writers and directors and producers and cast and directors have uh, casters, uh, cast that film phenomenally in a lot of ways. But I, mm-hmm. I think there's a way in which I would love for that whole ecosystem to have a deep analysis of the Kronk and Touch narrative mm-hmm. and how they can they can shift what young black folks are doing to each other and around each other mm-hmm. with one profound cinematic movie and how interruptive it'll feel when we have those kind of analysis incorporated in the amazing storytelling cinematography that's already being expressed. That's one name like, Ooh, imagine mm-hmm. if this narrative we're talking about now is actually cinematically available, how that could just shift in one generation. Folks are like, Oh yeah, of course we can cuddle and hug and then also be strong and able and cry and also not be mocked. And, and we still could be rulers of rulers and leaders and whatever we need to be and be a complete emotional profile like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which in All many right. ways also what we saw in Wakanda forever is that the women had much more allowance for that. Yes. Yes. And I know I'm behind behind because I still need to see Woman King. I was busy with a lot of stuff at the time it came out. I'm certain that there's that element there too. That yeah. it was much easier for even though they were warriors, there was still yeah. a certain level of bonding that could happen between them that did involve touch. Yeah, I I I love <laughs> Viola Davis and I saw that movie in theaters as soon as it came out. And I know there's been a lot of discussion about it, but I will say that you're right. It's 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 palpable when it's palpable when you have black women leading a cinematic film. Mm-hmm. It's amazing of how much emotional intelligence is almost organically in the script in the movie. Even though that's kind of filtered through white Hollywood still, it's amazing how much still makes it to the screen mm-hmm. in, in the contrary. So I think Woman King um is a is, is so many places in there that had an opportunity for tenderness and vulnerability that you just wouldn't see cinematically mm-hmm. um and uh if it was a man king <laughs> he'll call it version of it so yeah 100 percent. it's it's a film that I, I i honor all these films i don't i don't i'm not hardcore boycotting any black cinema film anytime soon since i and we need a lot more in my book before i get really critical but i, I think we should have analysis mm-hmm. and have an investment and having this discussion mm-hmm. and, and back them at the same time so yeah i appreciate that uh which then brings i think also nicely wraps back into the aspect of one of our biggest elements here is talking about black men under touched. Yes. Just in that nature of it. When did the King get touched? 
Ooh. who got to touch the king. Mm. And this is the person who's leading your culture yes. and in theory setting your standards. Yes. So how does the king understand and normalize contact? Yes. And that also becomes a problem with the uh, classic idea of divine right rule. You're not supposed to touch a god. Yeah. Yeah. That feels a lot like the the embodiment of patriarchy in America today. Um, mm. We really carry a level of of leadership, of of untouchableness, <laughs> mm. untenderness. That leadership is is synonymous with um, no emotions. My my father was a pastor for all of my life, and I remember we would go to because of the carnage of our particular community. We would go to average three to six funerals a year. My dad would preach probably three out of the six. And his tradition was he would preach. And then after he would preach, he would walk down. He would stand next to the casket as the family would come up and see the their loved one for the last time. And they would just like one human should do when they see the loved one for the last time, weep and cry. And he would just stoically stand by the casket as if there wasn't a tear in his body to come through his body. And I grew up from five years old, early memories, looking at him. And at that time, not even taking it in. Mm-hmm. Not even like I didn't even know I was already embodying not feeling and not crying or not mm-hmm. being tender and vulnerable, but it was happening in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember probably around college, I started having some art pieces around tears and crying. I started kind of having some analysis. I, I was still five, six years out from having my first tears in my adult years. And so I think there's a level of, of kings, leadership, pastors, like their ability to be complex, like tears and touch aren't far apart. Mm-hmm. tenderness and touch are not far apart. When we're building a comprehensive touch plan for young black men, we're not, I, I, we always ask them on the first day, what is your touch plan? Oh, my girlfriend. They're done. Oh, my partner, my wife. That's it. That, that, that's it's one on the list. And you ask him six months in, what is your touch plan? They go, well, number one is probably the earth. Oh, my dog, my good friend, so-and-so, who's the man, my other good friend, so-and-so, who's also so-and-so. And we have like 10 things all the way down to number 10. Oh, yeah, and my wife, too and mm-hmm. my partner too, and my potential partner in the future, that's there. But it's not all that on them. And that, that part of imbalance that is so normalized in our behavior is you're, you're all of my touch mm-hmm. is a part of that narrative that's a, inappropriate on any cultural space. But I find it very damaging when we look at folks that are black men that are targeted by other oppressions that lock us up for being accused of being targeted as violence, that lock us up for a drug addiction and other addictions that will cause them ravening through our space. We see addiction drop dramatically. We see violence drop dramatically. When someone's at touch balance, their whole ecosystem is shifted. Right? Mm-hmm. The whole ecosystem has shifted. So I just, I sit back and I get, I get teary-eyed and, and my heart opens up. When I think about building, um, I look at the United States and how many football fields in every high school, every college, every junior college, like real estate. And I'm not here to dismantle that, but I would love to, to, to have a, a bird's eye view in 20 years, 30 years, whenever it's possible. We have same amount of resource set aside. Mm-hmm. So we have grid lines for football to hit each other and grid lines to, to go and, and cuddle and be close and build safe communities for folks to, to, to normalize being human in public. Mm-hmm. That's not even a radical thing anymore. I, I, I dream and envision that day someday. Very nice. So we'll just pause there and uh, for the recording. And I just want everyone to consider what was just said here. What's your touch plan? Name the 10 different things and or people that you are in constant physical contact with. Obviously, the earth is one of those. Your partner might be number two, but where are the others? So take a moment, folks. 
in this break. Think about that. Ask yourself that question. And we'll be back here on Untying Knots. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with Aaron Johnson. So stay tuned, folks. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with Aaron Johnson. And we've been talking about the subject of the chronically undertouched, and especially undertouched for men, and especially men of color, especially black men. So we ended last the last segment asked with the question of folks, what is your un, what is your touch plan? So let's talk about some what are some of the simple things people can do to start further building their touch plan and realizing what's missing and they can, and then your program from there. Well, oh man, there's so much. I love how practical this is. Um, And I think the first thing is that I know that all of our nervous systems are very different and how trauma big and small and in between hits on our nervous system. So I think the first thing I invite folks to do is just to kind of do an assessment. Some folks are like, if I had a choice, I would never leave my bed. I would just cuddle for hours and hours and never get out of bed. I mean, my job, my job was cuddling. I would just do that all the time. And some folks are like, I don't need much. Just like 10 minutes of cuddling. I'm good for a week, but just know where you are, know where you're trying, try and get a sense of where you are. You might get your 10 minutes in, go, I could use 20 and so on and so forth. I've worked with a lot of young black men early on. They were like, "Ah, I'm good. I don't need any touch. And then a week later, like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, this is, I needed so much touch. I didn't realize because they had given up on the idea. So the practical things we can do is first, I would say in a simple meditative or journaling space, if you're a writer, um, just sit down and just go, if I had a magic wand in my life, how much touch would I prefer? Would I, would I would say that would be balancing for me? And we're talking about um, whatever is nourishing touch for you. Mm-hmm. Um, tender touch might not be always nourishing depending on your nervous system outgoes. So once you get that sense, 
I have told folks that I work with, and I have a pretty more intense schedule now, that I have folks I work with where we are virtual. We're, I'm on the tour right now. We call each other for three minutes. We just say, you know what? I'm going to, and one of my favorite things to do is we say coconut oil mm-hmm. or shea butter and just do like an arm massage while I'm on the phone with attention with someone holding space with me going almost like accountability partner, awareness. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm holding my hands. I'm just intentionally learning what it means to have a touch practice with my body for three minutes. Sometimes I just look at chest massage. It's not like a professional. It's like just literally intuitive. Just the most important thing is I'm consciously aware of how tender I am and how important it is to be with my body, right? Practice touching my body because it's so much easier for me to help someone touch my body if I practice it myself. And so the idea is that's three minutes. And most people are like, Aaron, why three minutes? Why not like 15? You can grow to that. But I found in a culture that has the illusion that we never have enough time for magic to always say three minutes we have, right? We have that. And I, I found the most busiest person to take three minutes. The other piece, and this is legitimately important, and that if you live in a large city, this might not be easy, but I think it's important to fight for touch with the earth. And I, I realize this is difficult at times, but I remember I was in San Francisco doing a workshop with children and my nervous system was so shocked because I was a whole week without touching. My hands were shaky. I was like, what's going on? I don't drink coffee. I don't do drugs. I don't, why am I so shaky? And I remember I, the last exercise we did with those students that week was to do clay structures and make play with clay that I, had, I bring from the desert. And I stuck my hands to get the clay kind of you know, mixed up and moist. And I felt my whole body go like, just like, like just suck, like almost like I was out of mm-hmm. water and I had never experienced that consciously. And so I would say that if you're in a city where you get up in the morning, you might not actually naturally touch the earth. I recommend if there's any safe earth in your backyard, if there's any earth you can get access to that's, that's accessible um, to go take your shoes off and sit five minutes. You can start with five minutes, your feet, on the earth. And in some cases that might be difficult. And what I do is oftentimes when I travel, especially large cities, I carry a clay ball. I carry a clay ball for my property, um, maybe the size of like a little tangerine or a lemon. And I just put it in my bag and I just take it out. And I just rub it. Sometimes I rub it on my chest and I just rub it in my hands. So I just hold it. I love clay for that. And all my workshops, I hand out clay. So I would say, get some clay. Now all earth is great, but clay naturally balls itself up mm-hmm. to the beautiful, almost meditative space. Take that clay ball, hold it 20 minutes a day. I would say mm, that is medicine that you wouldn't even realize is a part of your world. And I'll close with one of the things we do, and this is something that is a little more extreme, but when you can, I would say, make it a part of your summer or life design if you have the privilege of resource to do so. And go and spend the night in a natural building, a super adobe, a cob house, uh, some kind of natural building. Chance to find, because it's almost there, but I would prefer folks seek out natural to break the landscape of where we are and we shelter ourselves in it is an energetic shift to make that a part of your bucket list summer plans to get to places where um that's accessible i know folks in arizona and folks in like the high desert so they have more accessibility but there's a cop house that's happening everywhere but i would say try and get to those spaces and and, and drop in and notice your energetic field shift um and that's what i would say i think some would also know them as earth ships oh yeah earth ships would qualify as this too earth ships are another it's powerful a- natural building which is a form of architectural practice for those wondering. Another thought just comes to mind, especially from what we do in some of the therapy practices, getting like some of those storage bins that you would store stuff in. It doesn't have to be a big one or deep one. And just go get a small bag of potting soil, which you can find at any hardware store, like grocery outlets and so forth, and put that in the bin and periodically put your feet in it. Yes. Yes, that's also too good too because I know that sometimes large cities have high levels of lead in their in their soil because of just 
the traffic and the toxic of a city. And so it might be good to go get some soil from the store and get it cleaned or it's already clean. It's good for like growing food. It's good for your feet. Um, So that's that's something I've learned. I was in the Bay area. We were going to build a strip adobe structure and we had to bring soil in from outside the city that didn't have so much high content of lead in it. And I was like, what? Um, But yeah, I'm so used to the desert where we live where the lead content is very, very low, if non-existent at all, because it's not high population. So yeah, that's an excellent, excellent recommendation. Well, also not just high population, a history. Mm. Consider lead was a additive to paint before yeah. we realized it between what I think it was 19. We realized it in like 1950, 1960. So yeah. how many years before that were they dumping lead into the paint? Yeah. Let alone what we know about the gasoline too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there is a history here where the sense of that lack of forethought which mm-hmm. can also be said is tied to that lack of touch. Yeah. Poison so many things. It is. It is. Ooh. So those are some of the simple things people can do. Why don't we talk a little more about your program? So if those who are interested in uh, finding them, calling you in or sending people to your program, what do they, what, what would you like them to know? Yeah, well, there's this like this is so I'm I'm this feels really moving. Well, uh, cutproject.org just went live maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, we are in two major containers. One, we are accepting folks to apply to be a part of our um, deep holding program to uh, be um, supported in 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 getting their touch balance. And we also are launching our cut specialist program that's merging into um, what we are calling, eventually we're calling the touch activist program because we realize mm-hmm. it's more touch activists and touch specialists. But right now it's sitting in the container, our last cycle of our touch specialists. These are folks that want to uh, be trained by us and our team on like how to take this into the world. Um, and that is going to be, um, that section is going to be uh, put, we're going to have our first in-person immersion weekend in July, I believe the second to last weekend in July in Montgomery, Alabama. And the reason we're going to Montgomery, Alabama is that part of that intensive weekend is going to be walking through the Legacy Museum and getting the context of lynching in America because we're going to talk about um, touch and bruteness and mm. and and the history. We, you can't get an epic center of of the the story of lynching amongst other things is the justification was the image of the black brute. And so mm-hmm. that specialist will go through that program. And we're going to have um, another touch specialist program where I'm at right now. I'm at, I'm in Northern California. We're going to have an immersion and this is going to be centered around African heritage folks specifically. It's going to be a black touch specialist program. And we're gonna have an immersion program here on the land. It's 189 acres off grid um, uh, land that is part of its commitment here is to support reclaiming the touch program. And then in that, um, you'll see that on the website is we're making a documentary. We're making a documentary. If folks that apply will have an option to be a part of the documentary um, as we want to document a group of Black men and other Black body folks, but Black men is one that's one of the hardest ones to find that are going to go through a year cycle of being chronically under touch to their touch balance and how their life and shifts, what obstacles come up for them. And so those are ways that all be kind of found there on the cut project um, website.org. You can find that at our cut dot project on Instagram. We'll be updating those ideas, but that's the best way to find us. Um, and we'll be excited to, to be graduating our second class of touch specialists. 
mm-hmm. and also um, inviting our first class of, of, of deep holders or be held in their in their container. So that's where we are right now. And I'm, I'm really moved. This, this property here is, is still in this process of, of, of being, being anointed with this first uh, class of touch specialists, but I'm so glad to have a space um, and hope to have more spaces in the United States. This is a, a football field to talk about. This is the first one, mm-hmm. 180 acres here in Northern California. And uh, we want that um, immersed, deep nature experience here. And we hope that to, to continue to build on that. Very nice. And everyone's to build further forward. So let's go on to one of my you know, sort of closing questions, which is talking about the myths and realities uh, of mental health. And as, as the sort of our, our conversation is brought up, how has there been oppression around mm-hmm. our mental health? And let's, if we can, tie back into this sense of touch as well. Yeah. Mm. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think one of the missing pieces in our modern day therapy is touch, right? You can't mm-hmm. touch your clients. I mean, this is not something that's licensed to do for a variety of reasons from legalities and everything else. But there's uh, a question I ask a lot of folks, therapists included, it's like, um, what was missing for from therapy in the whole world for a long time was black people. So talking mm-hmm. to you <laughs> as a professional that has, has fought your way through all the obstacles to become a therapist is is tremendously, wasn't even accessible to me. Um, even 10 years ago, I couldn't find a therapist near me and, and we weren't doing a lot of virtual back then. Um, and so for me, I think what has been missing was black folks. And but now that is changing. I feel like um, there's no, you know, when I, when I, use the analogy of I'm lost in the forest for four weeks, I'm starving. And then finally the rescue team finds me and they take me to the hospital. The hospital doesn't go, oh my goodness, Aaron, you were starving for four weeks. You have eaten a full meal. There's a buffet nearby. Let's take you over there and eat all you want. I probably could die Mm -hmm. from that kind of intake of food after not having food. There's an actual medical protocol. I don't know it, but Mm -hmm. I know it exists. Mm -hmm. The doctors would, would hydrate me and bring me slowly back into nutrition balance. There's a medical protocol. But if I show up and I'm chronically under touch as a black male body to any kind of therapy experience, I am chronically under touch. I am, I've been touched in, in, in 12 years. I'm under touched. We don't actually have a comprehensive model or multiple options that will help different mental health crises with different. We don't have a clear protocol. Of, oh, oh, no problem. So come right in here. We have a touch special program right down the hallway here. We, we don't have it accessible. Folks that have really studied the whole, the complexity around the black male body, we'll see that as examples mm-hmm. when it's most untouchable right now. And to the professional field of like, how do we bring you from that gradient into that space to now you can now have a cuddle plan, a mm-hmm. comfortable touch plan, an earth touch plan that now you can take into the world without being ridiculed and, 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 and attacked for it. And a lot of young black men that come out of our program, we say, you don't want to go into so I think that's missing that that protocol I say multiple protocols because we need like mm-hmm. 50 probably, but even one mm-hmm. is not readily available. Which I think brings up an interesting aspect in our field. And I say this with full respect to my other therapists, our field is very much female dominated. Yeah. And then we've also got the issues of where are and how are our female therapists, one, comfortable dealing with such things as anger. Because anger can be the oh, yeah. surface candy on the sadness. Oh yeah. But also, if given the um, the stats have given on women who have been sexually assaulted, how many yeah. of them are also dealing with struggles of what it means to be dealing with a male client? And let's be frank, there's male clients who will not go to a woman therapist. Mm-hmm. So that training for them, for the for a female compat. Uh, 
fellow therapists understand that touch component and how it is not normalized mm-hmm. in their society. Dealing with their own biases around that is something to be brought attention to. And equally, how does that not support the idea of more like myself, men coming into this field mm-hmm. to continue to help with that and reminding that that there is a desire for them to have men that can do that. So why are you giving fault to those of us who are attempting to actually live and embody that quality? Hmm. There's so much. And I, I, I have a lot of women, white women, particularly therapists in my organization in Holistic Resistance and Abroad um, that have come to the work as anti-racist activists mm-hmm. and, and have heard about my touch specialists and touch activist program were like blown away and how much it differs from huddlers. And I, I'm here in the Northwest. I wasn't in the Northwest for the last month and a half. And I don't know if it's like the Epic Center, but it feels like the, all the professional cuddlers were either born, worked, or has been practiced and trained there in the Northwest. And I know there are other places in the country that people do special cuddling, but there's this kind of rogue um, evolving culture of, of, of professional cuddlers. And I, and then oftentimes they're also white women or not non-binary queer folks. And I will say that black men are oftentimes held the most unskillfully in those environments. And so working with them and a lot of these consent trainers also use their consent trainers, um, sex educators and cuddlers have no lens on lynching, have no lens on the black brute. And mm-hmm. it's terrifying to have them walk into a space and have no sense of that lineage in history. And so I think there's a lot of gaps when you close and just like historical history of like the, a lot of a lot of the cuddlers have not gazed at a picture of a lynched black body on a tree as a white body person in the United States. That's that's um, an important kind of history that's missing, I think, in their mm. analysis. Even I think a lot of white therapists have not spent enough time with that image or, or at all. And I think that's also a part of the gap. Or even the just the nature of how sexual assault was used in slavery. I mean, there is the classic stories about the woman being assaulted by the slave owner, but how many men were assaulted yeah. by the slave owner? Yes. Both male and by female yes. slave owners. Yes. So there's also an entire branch of that sexual assault history. Yes. That is not, that is on both sides, on all elements of our culture yes. that yes. is also needing to be understand, understood for what you're talking about. And you and I had a pre had a previous planning conversation. We discussed this, but just consider the history of the buck breaking farm. Yes. That's something for those of you who are interested, go look at the histories of that. Yes. Not to mention also the histories around breeding farms. Yes. So those are also parts of the, shall we say sexual touch damage that needs to be healed and that is still carried in epigenetically to this day as well as part of our generational trauma a hundred percent that is a hour that i would love to spend unpacking both of those two topics but in short i'll just say i'm deeply moved when we talk about what's missing um i would say that history especially if you're going to talk about touch and you're going to talk about, that's why we're going to Montgomery, Alabama for our touch specialist program. We're not going to Hawaii. We're not going to a nice resort. To No, we're going to Montgomery, which is an amazing place. But we're going to Montgomery to talk about mm-hmm. touch. And people are confused at first. Like, why are you going to Legacy Museum? Why are you going? Now, mind you, everyone should go to Legacy Museum. But for us, our cohort is really needs to make sure we're tracking what it means to show up with some sense 
of the actual history of the United States, how it attains to the sexual um, uh, trauma stories that are untracked, unnoticed, under-therapied in Black male bodies and Black bodies in America. And we're getting better, but I think this part around touch and, 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 and we talk about looking that up, I, I hope that there's some major films that have some deep analysis of these topics that skillfully track the, 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 the evolution mm-hmm. and the erasure of this topic. So I feel like that's huge. And I would say in conclusion, when I work with touch with young black men, homophobia, transphobia, it comes up so fast. It mm-hmm. comes up so fast. Um, and so I think for me, um, this is something I navigate on a daily basis. One of the biggest hurts that um, I have to wrestle with a really, really honing in on what does it mean to disrupt mm-hmm. the homophobia that's in our bodies that comes to that, that, buck-breaking farm in our black male bodies that doesn't sit in white male bodies the same way in the United States. So there's a way where we're ostracized without even being slowed down and analyzed. We should definitely heal from that, but our healing might be different because history is different. Mm-hmm. So that's something I want to make sure that we we make sure we speak to here and promise to to come back and and, and do our, our good work at spreading this knowledge into the world. So there's not just a couple of brothers talking about it um, uh, here, but we, it becomes a, a more of a national conversation. So all I can say, <laughs> So what I would probably say at this to end our conversation is um, oppression is the one who's saying, is this your king? Is this your king? And that's not the voice of Killmonger. That's the voice of oppression. So where can folks find you if they want to start asking more and getting involved with your helping and supporting your program? Yeah, cutproject.org holisticresistance.com easy ways to grab me just send me an email love to hear from you all perfect those will be in the show notes folks so uh to think about this think about what your touch plan is thinking about what more of history can you learn so that we can heal so this has been untying knots minds and souls and tethered i'm perry clark licensed marriage and family therapist here with aaron johnson so be well may the ancestors help you heal and go forth. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.